I'm feeling a little better. Well, I'm feeling a lot better. Last week, oh my gosh, I felt like I was talking through like a pipe or something. Like it was so hard. You know what? It felt like I was trying to talk through a kazoo. Have you? Do you guys talking about? Oh, so difficult. But um, so I want to talk about today. You know, if you if you've been here, you know we've been going through this series, right? Dear God, and we've talked about some some personal matters of faith. More recently, we've been talking about some of our theological distinctives. Today, we will be talking about what it means to follow Jesus, which is something that I think many of us know if you've been in church, if you've been a Christian for a while. It's something that it's something that we think we know, but I think it's not something we reckon with a lot, um, kind of in our hearts. And um, I, I do want to start by talking about um, some of these, you know, at least once a year we have to talk about this, right? Um, some Kind of what's going on in the world, and some of these numbers are a little bit updated from the last time we've talked about this. But this, for if you're not familiar, I know most of us are familiar, but this is the 1040, what's called the 1040 window, this highlighted area. Um, it's from, you know, 10 to 40. Uh, latitude and it it covers this area of the world and it covers about 4.9 billion people there is in total about 8,000 you know it's it's up there over 8,000 people groups and about five and a half thousand UPGs or unreached people groups so again a people group if you're not familiar it's just a it's just a way of distinguishing like a distinct group of people other than using like nation Right, because there's only there's only you know whatever a hundred something countries in the world, right? But there are many thousands of people groups within one country, like India, for example. There are many many people groups, and so people groups is kind of uh, it's a missiologically when we talk about missions, it's one way that we think about how the gospel needs to get to people. It needs to cross all of these people groups. So this is where most of these unreached people groups kind of are, there, uh, there are about 3 billion people in this, just in this area of the world that have, uh, that are what's called unreached. So they, they don't have access to the gospel, right? So there's no church near them. They can't hear the gospel even if they wanted to. So it's different than America, right, where you can hear the gospel. You, you pretty much have to hear the gospel. Uh, so I, I want to throw just some things at you, and I've said some of these things before, but uh, 86% of non-Christians in the world are not relationally connected to even one Christian. So most of the people in the world who are not Christian don't know any Christians. So they're not, they're not like relatives with any Christians. They're not friends with any Christians. That's, so again, that's, that's not the case here in the United States. But if you go outside of the United States, this is often the case where they don't even have access to somebody telling them about Jesus. Um, there are 640 churches for every one unreached people group. So for all the unreached people groups of the world, there are about 640 churches. You could assign 640 churches and say, okay, use 640 churches. You guys all get together, and it's your job to reach this one unreached people group. If we did that with all the churches in the world, that's how it would break down, right? And that actually breaks down to about 81,000 evangelical Christians. Evangelical is a way of dis- 
of kind of distinguishing Christians that's a little more, you know, when, when, when we do like census, world census, and we say who's Christian, there's, there's about 2.3 billion people, but that includes um, like all Catholics and, you know, Mormons and kind of all these different groups that we kind of would not consider Orthodox Christian. And so evangelical is a way that kind of narrows that down to who we think, at least gives us a ballpark idea of like who's really Christian. And there are about 550 million evangelicals in the world. Well, it depends who you ask. Some might say 650. But even with the smaller number, we could get, if we got all the Christians together in the world, everyone who at least we think is Christian, we could divide into 80,000 people per one unreached people group. So we could say like, hey, there's this small unreached people group in India. There's this group that has never heard the gospel. They have no access to the gospel. It is the job of you 80,000 Christians. You know, so all you 80,000, pull your resources, your manpower, your money, all your education, everything that you have. It's your job to get a Bible to these people, get it translated, get the gospel in there somehow. That's, that's how, how much we could do, you know, which always kind of, it boils down to this, which is, whenever I read this, I think it's wrong, so I have to check it again, but it's right. The church has 3,000 times the money and 9,000 times the manpower needed to finish the Great Commission. So the Great Commission is take the gospel to all the nations, right? Like the global church has about 3,000 times as much money as it needs and about 9,000 times as many people as it needs to just finish the Great Commission. Now, it always makes me think, like, how come it's not happening then? Right? If, if we have that much money and that many people, why isn't it happening? Now, there are many reasons for that. We will, I think, we're going to talk about why I think that is the case today. Now, before we get into it, I'm going to say a few things before we get into the text. One, I firmly believe that I need the message today as much as anybody else in here. So this isn't me talking to you guys. It's like, I'm hoping that the word of God will speak to all of us. Second thing I want to say is, my purpose in talking about this is not so that we'll feel guilty. But if while we're talking about this, some of us feel guilt about certain things, I don't think necessarily what we should do is just ignore it and just think like, ah, well, the purpose isn't to feel guilty. So if I do feel any kind of guilt, then that's wrong. I don't necessarily think that's the case. I think maybe there is some appropriate level of guilt that we might feel in talking about some of these issues. Um, third thing I want to say is the, the totality of issues is complex, right? Like if we have that much money and people, like how come we can't just do it? So that's, that is complex. But we can't and we shouldn't say because I can't do everything, I won't do anything. So my hope today is that the Word of God will call us to clearly understand 
what Christ calls us to, to honestly examine our own hearts and then to appropriately respond to the Spirit through God's Word. That's, that's what I'm hoping. That's my prayer. And so if you guys have your Bibles, let's go ahead and open them up to uh, the book of Luke, Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. And we're going to start in verse 57. I'm going to read through verse 62. And what we will be looking at today is, I think, three questions we need to ask ourselves about following Jesus. Three questions we need to ask ourselves. And so we'll see those here. Uh, Luke chapter 9, verse 57 through 62. This is God's word, and it says, As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, first, uh, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Okay, three questions I want us to ask ourselves out of this text. Question number one, are we going to choose the certainty of comfort or the uncertainty of the cross? Are we going to choose the certainty of comfort or the uncertainty of the cross? The first man says, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus' response is pretty simple. Essentially, it's if you follow me, you can expect to be homeless. Right? Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man, which is the way that Jesus refers to himself, has nowhere to lay his head. He has no home. There is nowhere where he can call home. Following Jesus is not a path to having a steady, comfortable life. Now this tracks with everything that Jesus says in Luke. He says it repeatedly. He repeatedly warns against the, the, the desire for comfort. Right, the, the desire for just having a steady, comfortable life. Here's Luke 10, 3 through 4. It says, go your way. Behold, I am sending you as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. He's, he's sending his disciples out on a mission trip, basically. And he's saying, I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. This is one of the most nonsensical passages of Scripture. Right? And, and one author who, uh, who wrote something about this, he said, No sheep has ever won a fight with a wolf. The very idea is insane. And that's what Jesus chooses to say when he's saying, I'm sending you out. It's not the most, like, just, just to be straight, it's not the most encouraging <laughs> message, right? Like, hey, you guys are going to, you guys are going to, you know, Southeast Asia. You are going out as lambs among wolves. Right? You will be eaten alive. Like, that's not super, that's not like, that doesn't pump you up, right? But G this is the way that Jesus is, he's saying, essentially, it's going to be hard. 
He's preparing them for what's ahead. He doesn't, he doesn't want to equivocate, right? He doesn't want to lie. Luke 12, he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is. I'm sorry, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Do you see how he like repeatedly warns them? He says, there was this rich man who produced a lot of stuff and he thought to himself, my house is not big enough to store all the stuff that I own, so I need a bigger house. My, My barn's not big enough. My silo is not big enough to store all the stuff that I have, so I got to get a bigger one. I need more storage space. And he, talk, he, he talks to, I love like verse 19, right? He's like, he talks to himself. I'll say to my soul, soul, right? You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. If we find our security in worldly wealth, Or the opposite, if we find our insecurity in the lack of worldly wealth, here's the warning. That's foolish. This is how foolish it is to live in this world and be rich in the world, but not be rich toward God. What does it mean to be rich toward God? Here's a little later. He talks about this. He says, fear not, little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. It says, don't store up in this world. Like, do you think he's just telling them over and over, don't live for comfort in this world. Don't try to be rich in this world. Over and over and over again, he says it. A little later, he says it again, 16. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And they said to him, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And then finally, he tells them this story, this this parable. He says, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. That sounds like a good life, right? It's <laughs> clothed in purple and fine linen, feasts sumptuously every day. At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. 
The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Now there's more to this story, but this, the point is simple enough. If you fully enjoy your riches on earth, Right. If all you have to worry about is what to wear and what to eat, while well, there are those who have nothing to eat within reach, be warned. Because there is a reversal of, of fortunes in heaven. Like, do you see how Jesus pits treasure in this life against treasure in heaven? That's the way that he presents. That's what he's telling us, right? He's presenting it. They're they're opposites. You can't live for treasure in this life. You can't only worry about fine linen and purple clothes, you know, and like what shade of purple your clothes are and what food you're eating, what what you are feasting on sumptuously every day while there are people who don't know if they have anything to eat within reach. There will be a reversal of fortunes in heaven. To follow Jesus means to leave the chase for comfort behind. That's over. You know, most people in the world live on less than $2 a day. The average American lives on more than $90 per day. We may not, that's, that's 45 times, right, what the average global citizen Now, we may not always feel rich, but the fact of the matter is simply that we are rich. Like, if you needed money, there's a bunch of stuff you could sell to get money. You could sell your house, you could sell your car, you could sell your camera, you could sell your laptop, sell your phone, sell your shoes, sell your clothes. You got a bunch of old devices just lying around your house somewhere. You would never have to worry about food. We have to ask ourselves, are we not surrounded by the comforts of the world while the poor are just outside our gates? Uh, I read this article from Compassion International about uh, dangerous jobs, right? And they talked about, like, compressor diving in the Philippines. And there was a story about this man named Elmer. He, li- he risks his life, right? He's equipped with a regular plastic hose attached to a compressor for breathing and what he does is he goes underwater to a depth of like 65 to 100 feet he uses a self-made harpoon homemade flippers he attaches a flashlight to his chest and then he just goes fishing right and and the risk of of decompression sickness is very high for him and that can result in permanent paralysis or death He has no reserve tank, no rescue team, no regulation dive equipment. He has no insurance, no benefits, no retirement. He just goes out, risks his life every day, and he can't even go out every day because he doesn't have the means to go out every single day. 
when he goes in a group, sometimes he can haul in up to 22 pounds of fish. And I was like, oh, wow, that's a lot, right? And that earns him $7.70, which will provide him food for maybe a day or two. That's just a regular job over there. I read another one about a coconut harvester. He climbed, this dude climbs a 100-foot tree. A 100-foot tree. Do you guys know how tall that is? It's a, that's like about as tall as a nine-story building. Imagine climbing up a nine-story building, right, to get coconuts. This guy climbed with no shoes and no equipment. Like, no equipment. He has no even, like, a thing, like, not even a belt to, like, keep him. He just does it, like, just climbs up there. He gets coconuts. He climbs like 20 to 30 trees a day. Obviously, if he falls, he'll die. And on many days, there's no demand. This, this guy earns, you know, and some of you are like, oh, that sounds cool. Like, I do that job, right? This guy earns $14 a month for this job. On top of the fact that these are the types of poor communities where the same stories that are told are that people come in and exploit the people and then children are kidnapped and sold into slavery. These are the vulnerable communities where this kind of stuff happens. You know, 600 to 800,000 people are trafficked as slaves every year. There are currently 20 to 30 million slaves in the world, you know, victims of human trafficking. And I bring this up again um, not so that we'll feel guilty, necessarily, but I do want us to know two things, right? One, we have to acknowledge that we are rich. We are, in fact, rich. When you read about the rich in the Bible, like, you, sure, you certainly shouldn't be thinking, like, when, you, when it's like the rich, when, when Jesus says, oh, the rich, they better watch out. You shouldn't think, like, oh, yeah, those people. Like, they better watch out. Those, those, like, those one percenters, they better watch out. No, we are one percenters globally. Smaller than the, we're, we're smaller than the top one percent globally. Heed that warning. The other reason I bring this up is so that we won't forget that there are people in the world who are uncertain about whether they will eat or drink or live today. We cannot allow ourselves to ignore the suffering of others simply because it's like, it's unpalatable. You know, it's not nice to talk about or to listen to. I was reading this other article and this, this guy was saying, there's a, there's a peacetime mentality and a wartime mentality, right? Uh, in peacetime, we ask, how can I enjoy my life maximally? In wartime, we ask, how can I advance the cause? Make no mistake, church, until Jesus comes back, there's a war to be fought. The question is, will you be involved? Will you advance the cause? Will we choose the uncertainty of the cross or the certainty of comfort? Question two, are we going to pursue the mission idly or urgently? So this, this second guy, right, he says to another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, 
Let me first go and bury my father. Jesus says to them, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, his request seems reasonable. And if you think about it from an ancient culture, uh, burying a family member would be actually, you know, proper burial. This would be a major ancient concern according to tradition. So, so why does Jesus respond this way? You know, if he knows that this is, a, this is a responsibility to his family and ancient culture, why is he responding with this kind of like, let the, bed, the dead bury their own dead? Obviously, that doesn't even make sense literally, right? He's just kind of saying, hey, let other people take care of that. If you're going to follow me, then follow me. Right? He is emphasizing that the proclamation of the kingdom demands a greater sense of urgency. He's saying, if you're going to follow me, there's a unique urgency that needs to be adopted in that. There is an urgency that's greater even than familial responsibility, even than the duties that you're used to. This mission, this proclamation of the kingdom of God, this new age that I'm setting up by my death and resurrection isn't going to be about maintenance. It's not going to be about waiting for things to happen. It's going to be about my spirit making things happen. And so we have to ask, are we going to pursue the mission urgently or idly? Now, let me ask you something. When you think of the word urgency, what do you think of? Or let me, you know, let me ask it this way. When is, what is the last event in your life that you associate with the word urgent or urgency? That you had to do something urgent. Now, I'm just guessing, right? But it probably wasn't an emergency. It probably wasn't, like, because the things that we consider urgent in our lives aren't usually related to, like, life-threatening situations. Probably had nothing to do with, like, soldiers or, like, an epidemic or the need for clean water or food or shelter or even, like, avoiding a natural disaster, right? I know we had a couple earthquakes recently, right? Do you know how I responded to the, like, there was an earthquake. I was doing dishes, and it was, like, just like this. And I went, boomy. I think it's an earthquake. <laughs> and she said, are you sure? <laughs> I was like, yep. And then it was over. That was it. That was the entire thing, right? It was no, I didn't run anywhere. I didn't duck for cover. You know, I didn't try to go under the table or anything. It was just like, oh, it's an earthquake. This happens, you know, to us. It's a normal thing. I was, I, do you know what I felt like was urgent recently? I was on Twitter refreshing my feed because I wanted to know where Kawhi Leonard was going to go. That's, a, that's what I felt was urgent. Right? Like, we, we associate urgency with, like, an event, something happening somewhere, information, getting somewhere on time, you know, going to, like, a concert. Maybe a, maybe a sale is something we might consider urgent. Right? The other day, actually, I opened up my web browser. I go to Amazon, right? I need, like, a Brita filter or something. I go to Amazon. I'm shopping, and I see this thing pop up on my Amazon. I don't know if any, any of you saw this, but it said, live Prime Day concert. You guys even know what that is? So just purely out of curiosity, I don't even know what the heck this is, right? I click on it. This thing opens up. It's a video, and it's, like, Jane Lynch. She's hosting this thing. She's in New York with a crowd of people, and she's literally, like, high-fiving people in this line. And she's like, happy Prime Day! Happy Prime Day! And she's high-fiving people. I'm like, what the heck is Prime Day? 
there's Taylor Swift. <laughs> she comes out. She's singing songs at a concert. Do, do you guys know what? I'm watching this. I'm like, what in the world is happening? Do you guys know what Prime Day is? It's tomorrow, apparently. It is. It's a sale. It's an Amazon sale. And it's like Amazon's anniversary or something. So I'm watching. What I was watching was a concert in honor of a sale. Literally. They're doing Alexa jokes. Like there's, there's Amazon commercials. And I'm watching this thinking, have we just completely lost it? What is happening? Be honest. Is there anything in your life beyond an entertainment event or a party that you would consider urgent, that you feel the need to rush to? like a movie or a concert or a sporting event or a party, like a, like a wedding, you know, a baby shower, bachelor party. Maybe, maybe work, right? Maybe an appointment. But is there anything else? Those are pretty much the things that we plan for, the things that make us feel busy, and the things that we worry about. But when it comes to the mission of the proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom of God, too often we are content to adopt an idle attitude that says, I'll pursue the mission of God if it comes to me. If and only if God himself shows up on my doorstep and asks me personally to get involved Only if God shoots lightning at my feet, and I'll make sure it's him. Because even even when the opportunity is there before me, I'll do it only if it's convenient, only if there's no sacrifice involved, only if I don't have to miss work or give up PTO, if it doesn't hurt my business or my bottom line, if it causes me the slightest inconvenience in any way, I'll just pass. I'll just pass next time. Let me tell you, church, God is inviting you personally into his work. This urgent, crucially important work. You know, uh, Heather is at, she's at candidate school in D.C. right now, right? She's getting ready to go to missions next year, you know, with InterServe. And... So she's out there preparing. You know, I was like, I was like texting with her earlier this week, seeing how she's doing. She's like, she's like ready to get out there, right? Like, and if you talk with her, you know, sometimes I'll have these conversations with her, just like after church or something. We'll talk about something, and she's like trying her hardest to get out of this country, and and get onto the mission field. You know, you get that sense, right? Like if you talk to her, you get that sense, right? And I I love talking to her because she really wants to go, like urgently. And I've encouraged her all along the way. I pray for her all the time. I mean, we've had many talks. I've, adv- I've advised her of things. And I've spent plenty of time kind of like having these conversations. But sometimes, right, in my casual, sinful, American, Christian heart, right, so this question arises in me that's like, what's the rush, Heather? You know, like, like slow down. Like, where's the fire? But that's, that's, that's not the heart of a follower of Jesus. Because 
The fires in Malaysia where there are 16 million people who don't know Jesus. The fires in China where they're, they're closing churches left and right because the government's coming in. The fires in Thailand. The fires in Indonesia and North Africa and India and Afghanistan and Iraq and Saudi Arabia where people are dying for Jesus. Do you know that 100,000, almost 100,000 Christians are martyred in the world every year right now, today? 100,000 people die Die. 100,000 Christians die, not in accidents, not in old age, not in retirement. They are murdered for their faith. See, because I know just because it doesn't happen here, that doesn't mean it, it doesn't happen. Sometimes we have this modern sensibility like, oh, nobody dies for their faith now in the world. Like, we've moved beyond that. No, there are still 20 to 30 million slaves. There are still 100,000 people dying every year for Jesus. There are still 16 million people in Malaysia, the country that our team is going to, who are on their way to hell, who've never heard the gospel, simply because there are millions of Christians in America who could go there and help spread the gospel, but don't want to. It's not because we don't have the money, because we have 3,000 times the money. And it's not because we don't have enough people, because we have 9,000 times the people. It's simply because we're too busy. We're too worried about our careers and our parties and our vacations. Do you want your life to be worth something? I'm not asking you if you want to be worth something because you are worth something. You are of great value to a perfect and holy God. He created you. He loves you. You have value just by being because you are made in the image of God. So I'm not asking you if you want to be worth something. I'm asking you, do you also want the life that you have lived to be worth something? Like at the end of your life, Do you want to have looked back on your life and say, my life was one of value, eternal value? At the end of days, when it's said and done, don't you want your life to be more than just the accumulation of moments? Like, remember that moment when we did that? Remember that moment? It was so funny. It was so fun. That was so good. Don't you want at the end of your life your life, the totality of your life to be more than an Instagram story, to be more than some feed somewhere? Don't you want to have advanced the cause of justice? Don't you want to have alleviated the suffering of the poor and the orphan and the refugee? Don't you want to have had a hand in bringing eternal life to people who are on their way to eternal death? Jesus assures us if that's the kind of life we want to live, we cannot sit idly by and wait for epiphanies to respond to. If we want to follow the call of Christ, we must live urgently for it. 
We have to live every day knowing that the call to follow Christ is a gift and one to be shared, not one to be hoarded, and certainly not one to be taken for granted. Are we going to choose the certainty of comfort or the uncertainty of the cross? Are we going to pursue the mission of Christ idly or urgently? Here's a third question that I think Jesus wants us to consider. Are we going to be undecided or undivided about following Jesus? Are we going to be undecided or undivided about following Jesus? So the final guy comes, right? Says yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, this request is similar to the previous request, in a sense, saying, I want to go back to my family, I want to deal with something family wise, but it's not a familial responsibility. This is a, more of a matter of heart. Right, and actually mirrors a request in the Old Testament in Kings 19 when Elisha says something similar to Elijah. He says, let me go back, say goodbye to my father. And Elijah grants his request. Now, I think there is something deliberate there because Jesus is saying what we are in in this age is different than what's in the previous age. There is a greater need for urgency. And this metaphor is proverbial. Now, in this case, he's... Not Jesus isn't so much talking about urgency as he's talking about where's your heart at? You know, and he, he tells this metaphor. It refers to the plowing, kind of plowing the field with eyes ahead so that you go straight. Especially in Palestine, if you were to look backwards, it would mess you up. Now, there is, this is a biblical idea presented tons of times in Scripture, right? Like the Israelites, after the Exodus, they kept looking back. Like, oh, remember what it was like in slavery when we had these pots of food? Like they misremembered, obviously. But they would look back and they would think about that. Remember Lot's wife when they're running away, Sodom and Gomorrah is being destroyed, and God says, run away, don't look back. Lot's wife, she looks back, she turns into a pillar of salt. There is a notion in Scripture that repeats itself that Jesus is emphasizing here, saying, if you want to follow me, don't look back. And one of my favorite passages, only because it convicts me every time I read it, is 1 Kings 18.21. Elijah defeats the prophets of Baal, right? You guys know the story of the fire from heaven? Right? He pours water on the bull. It's like, yeah, let's make sure that if, if something happens here, we're going to know it's from God. You know, the prophets of Baal, they all pray. Four to 50 prophets of Baal and, you know, Asherah, they're all praying. Nothing happens, right? And then Elijah prays to God. Fire comes down from heaven, consumes everything, the whole sacrifice. In the first Kings eighteen twenty one, Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, if Yahweh is God, follow him. If Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word because God sends down the fire from heaven it consumes the sacrifice completely and Elijah the prophet of God he stands before his people and he says how long are you gonna sit on the fence like like are you just gonna do this forever if Baal's God just go follow him go worship him 
Right? If that's going to be your God, just go worship it as God. But if Yahweh is God, if you are convinced that God is God, then stop limping around between two opinions. Now, let me say this, okay? There is a time and a place to be undecided. But it's not after you've decided to follow Jesus. Right? Like, if you're here and you're really just unsure where you stand with God and in your faith, like, if that's where you're at, that's completely fine. And it's completely understandable, right? Like, if you're just, like, thinking about God and you're like, oh, well, where do I stand before God? I don't really know where I am. I don't know where I am in my faith and my discipleship. I don't know if Jesus really was who he said he was. I don't, you know, the gospel is still a question in your mind. Then it's normal, of course. It's 100% normal to have wavering in your heart, to be like undecided. That's natural. To be equally weighing what God says against what your parents say or against like what your friend says or against like what the world says. That completely makes sense. But if, if that's not you, like if you're already decided, like you've been convinced and you have decided, you believe that Jesus was real. He was who he said he was. He did what he said he did. You've been in the water. You know what it is to be buried. You know what it is to rise out of the water. You've signed the covenant. You've stated the vows. You've taken the leap. You've already said, my life is going to be primarily about one thing. If that's you, brother or sister, I call you brother or sister because we're in the same boat then you're past the point of no return. And looking back is just remembering a life that's less than what lies ahead. If that's you, you've decided. Then it's no time to waver. Deciding is not what you should be spending your time doing. It's time to live according to your decision. It's time to move toward being undivided. For Christ demands undivided hearts because that's the path to flourishing in our following of him. When Jesus speaks of cost, I say this a lot, but when Jesus speaks of cost, he always also, at least implicitly, speaks of worth. Like when he says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. If he's, when he says, if you look back, you are not fit. You are not worthy of the kingdom of God. He's saying, it costs us everything we have to follow him. But what Jesus reassures us of is that it costs us everything because he's worth more than everything we could ever own. He's greater than all your potential treasure. If all your plans came to fruition, all your dreams came true, everything you wanted for your career, everything you wanted for your family, everything you wanted financially, if everything that you wanted came true and you put that against knowing Jesus deeply and fully, Jesus is simply better. Period. Point blank. No discussion. Comprehending his love is greater than any love you have, any love you've known, or even the sum of all the loves you will ever know in your life combined. But you can't truly, this is why Jesus says you're not, like if you follow Jesus half-heartedly, it's not the way to follow him. You can't know that love when you've hedged your bets. 
Like imagine you're walking through the desert. You know, your throat is parched and dry. My throat feels pretty dry right now. Body is melting from the heat. Okay, you are just like tired. You're exhausted. You're sweating. And then you stumble upon one of those like, you know, that like picturesque oasis. The kind of, it's not a mirage. It's real. Like this just beautiful, like lush waterfall. It's green. You know, it's, it's amazing, right? Because that's, that's kind of what meeting Jesus is like. And then here's what we do. Here's what many of us do. We live perpetually on the edge of the water. Right? We sit on the ground, and then we dip our toe in the water in the corner of the lake. And then we ask God, why do I not feel more refreshed? If you're, if you're, if you're nibbling around the edges of Christianity, then don't ask God why you're not more satisfied. Giving God your least will never result in him giving you his best. Too often we focus on what it will cost us to follow him. But let me turn your attention to what it's worth to follow him. Yes, it costs a lot to follow Jesus. There are fires in the world. There's people dying in the world. There are people who have nothing to eat in the world. And some of them aren't that far away. And yes, to live, not to do everything, but to do something, is hard. It's, it requires sacrifice. It requires thinking of the other. It requires laying down some of the things that you want, some of your plans, some of your money, some of your time, some of your dreams. It costs a lot to follow Jesus, but it costs far more to not follow Jesus. There are a few things in this life that will cost you everything, and yet you feel like you're getting a bargain. And Jesus is the utmost of those deals. Church, if we are to care about the suffering church in China and the lost in Malaysia, and the broken in Thailand, and the gospel reaching the billions of people in the nations, including our own, then we must decide that Jesus is our all, and following him, even if it requires our all, will be our choice. And he is reassuring us today that the reward in that far exceeds the cost in it. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for the cost of following you. Because Jesus, I know, I know in our hearts, in our American consumerist hearts, God, something, uh, I know that we want to maximize the benefits of you while minimizing the cost of you. God, we want to know you fully and deeply while giving you as little time as possible. We want to have a great impact on the world while doing as little as we can, God. We want our small money to go a big way. I know, God, that that's the logic we've been brought up in, the one that the world teaches us, the way that we live our lives. But thank you 
that there is this paradoxical, that there is this beautiful way about you. That we could give you everything we have. We could give you all that we could ever own, every title to our name, every accolade to our credit, God, every achievement, every relationship, every dime we've ever earned, God, we could give it all to you. And it would be worth far more, God, than if we did something with it. Thank you, God, that the more we give to you, the more we know you, we understand you, we appreciate you. We love you, God. We delight in you. The more it costs us, God, the more you are worth to us. Thank you, Jesus, that it is that way. And we pray that you would give us courage to follow our convictions into that truth. I know it will not be easy. You do not tell us it will be easy. You only tell us that it will be worth it. Let us believe that, God. We entrust it to you. We thank you so much and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray.